Greetings again in the name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Pastor May J. Gibbons Sr. coming to you on Friday night for our um, Bible Institute. We thank God for you joining us on On the Wall Ministries Bible Institute tonight. We're getting ready to continue our study on uh, the gospel possessions and prosperity. We've been uh, started it on last quarter, uh, last week, and we thank God for that. Uh, just trying to get some clarity on uh, the Gospels and the prosperity ministry that is being taught today, and we want to have some clarity on that, and tonight we're going to continue in that study. Last week we talked about uh, we're going into the Gospel because you see everything is in the light of the Gospel, and we're going to look at the Gospel and its possessions, and then we're going to look at Old Testament, New Testament, and the people of God, and then we after that we're going to look at a few passages on tonight, referring the applications, and then also the gospel and prosperity. So as we look at that tonight, we're going to get into that study. So I hope that you, you have downloaded our uh, lesson format that is online. Download your lesson format, then we'll be able to get that study in to do the work uh, uh, that God has called us to do. So let us bow. Father God, we do thank you, Lord, for the day. We thank you for this opportunity to come. And as we come, Lord, we ask that you just touch your dear servant. Touch me, O Heavenly Father that I might speak boldly those things you have laid upon my heart, those things that you have given unto me, Lord, let me now give unto your people that they might have enlightenment and an edification of your word. Lord, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, again, we get into the gospel as we study tonight. We're going to look at the plan, the plan that we have in order to uh, get this word out to be able to be an impact upon people's lives. See, I hope that you got your Bible tonight. We are going to go through some passages. We're going to have some text. We're going to touch some of them, but a lot of them is in your study plan. Download your study plan so that we can have uh, your study plan in front of you. So um, the gospel, as we stand in here because of the gospel, transforms everything in our lives. And there are some things that uh, along the way that we're going to talk about, hopefully that we'll be able to clear up some of the gospel misunderstanding about prosperity and possessions and, and sometimes we get really confused on those things and we hopefully will we'll make it clear enough where we'll have a greater understanding. Uh, Romans 3, 21 and 26 and a good uh, memorization paragraph and one of the most beautiful and one of the most important and profound paragraphs in the Bible and I and I put this under the definition that if you are able to ask me and to summarize of the gospel, how would we summarize the gospel? The gospel to me is the good news of the Bible. And, 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 and that's just and gracious uh, God of the universe that has uh, looked down upon us, hopefully, and sinful people and, and sent his darling son, Jesus Christ, into the world, the God of in the flesh, to bear the wrath against sin of the cross and then show the power of the over sin in the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. That should be our definition of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. The just and gracious God of the universe has looked down upon you and I, hopeless, sinful people. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, the God in the flesh, into the world to bear the wrath against sin on the cross, then show his power over sin in the resurrection that all who have faith in him might be reconciled to God. So that's 
the definition that we're going to use for the gospel. So we're going to study tonight, like start with five threads of the gospel, five threads of the gospel that we're going to look at those different threads of the gospel. Uh, you get into them as we study tonight. The first one we want to talk about is the character of God. We talked about it in our other study. First, the character of God. The gospel starts off with the glory of God. Second, the sinfulness of man, the sufficiency of Christ. And, and the third, God, man, Christ, then the necessity of faith. And that's how we respond to the gospel. Then the urgency of eternity, the character of God, sinfulness of man, the uh, sufficiency of Christ, the necessity of our faith, and the urgency of eternity. So I want us to think about those five threads a little bit to be understand how important they are because we're going to get into those uh, conclusions and those 18 conclusions as we get to the end of our study about money and possessions. We're going to look at them through the lenses of these five threads of the gospel. Let's talk about the character of God. Uh, a few things about God are missing all of his attributes that are fundamental to understanding the gospel. He is our creator. God is our creator. Genesis 1 and 1, Isaiah 40. He is the what? The everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. The fact that he is our creator means that we belong to him. We belong to God. He owns us, and that's a huge thing to think about when we're thinking about the Gospels, and, and we are his own, and we belong to another. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to someone else, and the one who created us has the authority over us, and we are not masters of our own. We're not masters of our own or captains of our own ship, of our own soul. We belong to another, and that one we belong to is our creator, God Almighty. Then secondly, uh, he is our judge. He is our judge. Psalm 7, Isaiah 5 talks about it. This means that we are what? Accountable to God. We are accountable to him. And, and, and this is the stark reality of the gospel. We belong to him. We are accountable to him. And we need him. We, we need him in our lives each and every second. We need him for every breath that we breathe. We need him in every area of our life. And he's loving toward us. And he's not self, uh, we are not, uh, uh, not a self-sustaining people that we think we are. We are God-sustained people. God sustains us and he keeps us. And we are just, uh, just creative we are his creative being, and he's our creator. He's a loving God, and that's the character of God. Then we have to think about the sinfulness man. If the character of God is to be able to care for us and to be our creator and our sustainer, what about the sinfulness of man? Uh, this trade, uh, we, 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 we've got God who he is, and now the question is, who are we? We know who God is, but who are we? We are what? Morally evil. And that's what the Bible says. A lot of times we don't want to think that we are evil because uh, 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 we think a little bit too highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But that doesn't sit well for many of us when we think about that we are morally evil. Well, you've sinned before and you've done some sins, some wrong things in your life. And okay, well, I guess we're evil, ain't it? Yeah, that's what evil means. That seems to take it a little too far sometimes. But too far is what the Bible does. The Bible makes sure that if it says that something is sin, it clarifies that it is sin. So we don't have to question whether it's sin or not. So the Bible says that we are evil, so we are inherently evil. 
and the intention of the man's heart is, is, is too far, is evil from his youth. Uh, that's what Genesis 8 and 21 said. God said that. Man didn't say that. God said the intention of a man's heart is evil from his youth. Then Luke 11, Jesus practically assumes that, that, that we know we are evil. We know we are evil. We are born with an evil, God-hating heart. And, and people say, well, I always love God. But you haven't. You haven't always loved God. We, we hated God, but God had to send Jesus Christ to change our heart in order for him to, to, for us to have the love of God in our hearts. The Bible says that we are what? Morally evil. And we are what? Spiritually sick. That's what the Bible says. It, Jesus says we are in need of a doctor. And at the core of our being, at the core of our nature, we have this malignant spiritual disease that somehow uh, far outweighs any cancer or physical disease that we could ever experience in the world. I thought cancer was hard, but cancer was easy compared to the that we face in our life. What about the temptation you face? You face temptation every day in your life. And if you think that's even, no, it is very hard for us to stand up against that morally evil, spiritually sick. If we don't have Christ in our life, we are always what? We are slaves to sin. That's what the Bible says. We are not free to live however we want to live, even though you think you are. We are slaves to ourselves and also slaves to the sin. Uh, Romans 6. A sixth chapter, and then John, uh, eighth chapter says the same thing. We are in the snare of the devil each and every day. Second Timothy, morally evil, spiritually sick, slaves to our sin, blinded by the truth. Our eyes are blinded. Second Corinthians 4 and 4 says that we don't uh, accept the things of God. We are darkened by our own understanding, blinded by the truth. We are children of wrath. That's what the Bible says. How is this? For the power of positive thinking that if you said that you are the children of wrath, you can't say that. Ephesians 2 and 3 said we are enemies of God. James 4 and Romans 5, ultimately, we are spiritually dead, dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, dead through sins. Romans 5 says that, that we are dead. Ephesians 5 says that the wages of sin and death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So now let us soak that in, that we're sinful we are morally evil. We are spiritually sick. We sin, slaves to our sin. We are blinded by the truth. We are the children of wrath. We are spiritually dead. And that makes us hopeless. Can those things ever uh, uh, have an inclination that that evil is good, huh? Can those whose every inclination is evil be good? Can they be good? No. If you are sick, can you make yourself well? Huh? If, if you are a slave, can you free yourself? If you're blind, can you cause yourself to have sight? If you are an object of wrath, can you appease that wrath that's in your life? If you're dead, how many of you have decided that I'm going to live? No, you, if you're dead, you cannot raise yourself up. The blind reality of the gospel is that apart from the divine intervention that God comes in and works in our life, we are helpless, we are hopeless, and, and, and can't do anything about our spiritual condition on our own. That's what the gospel places us. It places us in a place where we have no power or authority to do anything about our spiritual welfare in our own life. And that's huge to, to accept that. You have to realize that in order 
for us to have a need for Christ, you have to find yourself at that place, hopeless and helpless in need of a Savior. We live in a land of self-improvement. Somehow we get caught up in thinking that everything that we can do, we can solve it by self-improvement. So, well, the problem is that, that, that you have done some wrong things in your life, but the beauty of God, that God has a plan. Ain't that good news? He has a plan for our life to correct the wrongs that sin came in and caused in our life. We live in the world of that self-improvement who where a dose of church attendance, somehow followed by a prayer and a pretty, uh, good moral or decent life, seems to overcome the our sinfulness. But that's not the reality of it. The reality is that we cannot manufacture salvation and we cannot program it into our lives. We cannot even imitate it. We need God to do this for us. And that's what the gospel does. Then we talk about the sufficiency of Christ. And now we'll get into the beauty of the gospel and, and the sufficiency of Christ because he has done it in Christ. His life has displayed the righteousness of God. And we were slaves to sin, so we needed someone who was not a slave to sin to conquer sin in with their life. So that's what is needed someone who has not uh, been a slave to sin to conquer sin for us. So how can you conquer sin in your life when you're struggling with your own sin, trying to get it in your life, uh, to, to read it in your own personal life? So that's what is needed for someone who was not a slave to conquer sin in our life. And that's what First Peter and Hebrews 4 and John all said. Fully man, fully God. God is the only one that can do that. He, he obeys the law perfectly. He has no deceit in him. John 8 said that, convict me, show me where I have sinned. And he displayed the righteousness of God. When they tried to convict him of sin, what they, he said, I'm going to show you my righteousness. You show me where I'm wrong, I'll show you my righteousness. And, and, and that's where he is. His death satisfied the wrath of God, Romans 3 and 29. God put his forward as a propitiation by his blood. God put him forward as a propitiation. That's a great word, ain't it? And I thought about it. I don't know how Paul came up with that word, propitiation. But propitiation, it means that, that one who has turned aside wrath. Uh, Paul became the, the, the substitute for you and I. He became the propitiation for you and I. The wrath due to our sin and my sin from a holy God and his holy and good wrath, and his wrath is good. Sometimes we wonder, how is God's wrath good? So we don't think a wrath is being good, but it's a really good thing to know that God hates sin, and he destroys it. He poured out all of his holy wrath due to us on his darling son, Jesus Christ, to be able to turn aside the wrath from us. That's what he did for us. That's what Jesus did in my place, in your place condemned because uh, we stood and God made him of no sin so that he could reconcile us back to him and that we might become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5 and 21. And that's what propitiation is, that he took the substitute for you and I. He took the wrath for you and I. And because of the wrath that you and I deserve, 
Jesus Christ took that upon him and became the sufficiency for you and I. His death satisfied the wrath of God and his resurrection demonstrated the power of God. God vindicated the work of Christ and the cross for our sins by raising him from the dead. And I love the end of Colossians, the second chapter, verses 9 and 15. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross and disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put open shame by triumphing over them in him. And this is the character of God. Uh, he's holy. He's just. He's our creator. He's our savior. Sinfulness of man, dead objects of wrath, morally sick, evil, Christ comes. Then he displays his righteousness and his death satisfies God's wrath. And his resurrection demonstrates to us power to be able to bring us out of that sin and to destroy sin that is in our lives. So we talked about the the, 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 the character of God, the sinfulness of man, and the sufficiency of Christ. Now let's talk about the necessity of faith. Uh, so how does this become the reality in our lives? How does the necessity of faith become the reality in our lives? Now follow along with me here. We've just talked about Christ is the basis of our salvation. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has done the work. Jesus has conquered sin. He has purchased our righteousness for you and for me. And what that means is that there is no work for you and I to do. None. Jesus did it all. His work is the basis of our salvation. And that's what Ephesians 2, 4, and 7 is telling us. And if we were to ask you tonight, now, do you know that you are the righteousness of God? Huh? What do you mean? What's your response to that? If you had a one-on-one, -on -one, how do you know that you are righteous before God? And if first words that come in your mouth is because I, then you have the wrong answer. You are not righteous because of anything you did. You are righteous because of what Christ did. He is the only basis of our righteousness. It's not that I did or this or that. It's because of what Christ did on Calvary. Christ is the basis of our justification before God. So Christ is the basis. So now, how does that become the reality to us? How does that become a reality for us? Faith is the means of our salvation. Faith is the anti-work that God has done to justify us. We are justified not by works, but by faith. And, and faith justifies us. Galatians 2, 15 and 16 says that not by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith, trust, surrender, realization. There is nothing that you can do but trust in what has already been done for you and I. Now I want you to unpack this for a bit for a little because we are where we are going to get a little bit complex about the simple, those different things in the scripture. By initial faith in Christ, we are made right with God the Father. Romans 5 and 1, we have been justified by faith. We are enemies to God and we were what? Reconciled to God, what? By faith. Romans 5 says that, so that's what happened. Justification made right before God the Father by what? Faith in Jesus Christ. We are what? Experience a new birth. See, you remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus? 
He says that, you know, how can a man be born again? You know, and he says that unless you are born of the water and the spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, you must be what? Born again. So we have to be born again. We cannot gain anything on our own without going through this renewal. So what happens when you're born again? What happens when you're born again? First of all, God opens our eyes. When we are born again, open our eyes. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what the word says. You remember the whole contrast between this. Nicodemus is a good man. He's a religious leader, radically devoted to his word. He taught others the word of God. He, uh, but his realization needs uh, uh, to come to that he is dead and he needs life, and he's never been born spiritually with all that he has done. God help us to see this. No matter whether you're a preacher, whether you're a teacher, whatever, whoever you are, you have not done enough to get salvation on your own. You must have Jesus Christ in your life. So you must be born again. You must be born physically and you must be born spiritually to have the full life that God has for you. And God help us to see this. No matter what we've done, you're still dead and you can't make it on your own. Uh, you can't make yourself be born again. You must come through Christ. He says there's one way and we must have that way to be able to get to God. God has to open our eyes to this and then God has to change our heart. Once he opens our eyes, we have our heart clean. He says that you must be born of the water and spirit. This radical change happens inside of you. Salvation, don't, do, don't miss this. It, it's, it, it does not happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. Salvation happens from the inside out. God changes our hearts. And then it's, it's what Titus is talking about. It talks about uh, of the washing of our hearts. And then 1 Peter 1 and 23 says that you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable and through the living and abiding word of God. And, and it's the abiding word of God. God's word is what does it. And the whole background of, of behind John 3 in Ezekiel 36 is where the Bible talks about the prophet Ezekiel about water and spirit. And I want to remind you uh, what the reference is there. What, what happens when God changes our heart? Hmm? He cleanses us. See, water and blood, it cleanses us. Ezekiel 33 is the background of the Old Testament. It says that I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be able to clean from all of your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. See, what happens is when you're born again, God changes your heart. He changes your heart. He cleanses us from our sin. He washes us with by the power of his word. But that's not all. Don't think about it. Water and what? Water and spirit. Born of the water and spirit. He cleanses us. Secondly, he indwells in us. He indwells us. I will give you what? A new heart. And a new spirit I will put in you and remove that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. That's when the spirit of God, so God, what? He puts his spirit inside of us and that's what we need. We don't need cleansing 
Huh? We just don't need cleansing. And this is what oftentimes we think about when the gospel and salvation, we think, well, I've been cleansed from my sin. Now I'm going to live any way I want to. You've been cleansed from your sin, but you've been dwelled by the spirit of God. And that means that you live how he wants you to live. You don't live the way you want to live anyway. You live by God's rules and God's command. Everything in your life should be different. And that's huge to think about it. You should see all of the reports talk about how Christians, in order for to be classified as a Christian, only thing you have to say is you believe. But many times, see, you most Everybody you meet, they said you can meet an alcoholic on the street and he says he believes. But Christianity demands more of us. So they go on and talk about being born again Christians just like the world, born again Christians just like the world, and, and just like the world. And that it can't be, you can't be born again and be just like the world. The world is, it, 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 the, God will separate you. From what the world is, should be different than the world. It may, you, they might have done this or may have done that, but never been cleansed or changed because they are still thinking they can do whatever they want to do. And that's hugely important question that every single one of us need to answer. Has God changed our hearts? Has he changed our heart? An eternally important question. Has God changed your heart? Not did he walk the aisle or did you take the deal or, or, or did you get up on Thursday night or what? And I know good revivals tell me I got up on Thursday night. But on that Thursday night, did he change your heart? Was your heart changed? Has your heart been cleansed and, and dwelled by the Spirit of God? Has your eyes been opened to be able to see the need that God has for in your life? He changed our hearts. He enables us to believe. That's for the second half of the story. John 3 and 11 and 21. His belief is the mention over and over and over again in the Bible. So God enables our belief. And this is the key. A phrase that is intentional here. God enables us to believe. And that's something obvious that we need to believe, but nobody can uh, can do this on their own. We're, we, we're responsible uh, to God for this, and our, our destiny is in his hand. The Bible says no one comes to God unless the Spirit of God what draws them. So even God has to do something to be able to draw us unto him. And, and then Acts 11 said that you see the people coming to Christ, and when they heard these things, that they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying that the Gentiles also, God has a granted repentance. And, and then, see, we got to realize when people come to God, it's not about us. It's not you being a chosen people. Whoever God calls, they answer the call, and they will come to him. See, one had heard who was a young woman named Lydia, Sarah of the purple, or who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what that she had said to Paul. Lydia was selling purple goods, and the Lord opened your heart. God can open your heart if you just invite him in. So now, Tim, that can be a little confusing. Well, what do we do? How? What does God do in salvation? Huh? That's a good question, ain't it? Here's the reality. Faith is the act. We believe that faith is the only possible because God has to act to draw us to him. We would not have the faith to come to God if God didn't draw us to him. So he become also the provider. He is the source and the provider of everything that we have and have need of. 
And, and, and our salvation is not dependent upon our works. It's not dependent upon us making a decision. It, it, it's upon Christ drawing us to him. And then through that, we, we come to acknowledge and understanding the reality that we need him in our life. And look in the New Testament, you'll see belief involves. And so what is belief? By grace, we have turned from our sin and ourselves. We repent. And that's what the first Christian invitation was. Next, the chapter is, is that, that we have to what? That we repent, then we turn from our sin and self, and by grace, we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. He saved us from our sins. He reigns over us, us as Lord over our lives, and then he dominates our lives by uh, having us to do the things that are right in his sight. That's what God does. See, we, we don't see in Scripture anywhere talking about accepting Jesus as a personal savior. Instead, we see in people confessing him as Lord over the life. Oh, yes, he is our savior, but he needs to be Lord over our lives. He reigns over us. A savior just saves you, but he's king of kings and Lord of lords. See, put it all together. Christ is the basis of our salvation. Faith is the means of our salvation. And that gives us this radical confidence. Our salvation is certain. Isn't that good news? It's not based on how well we do today or tomorrow. It's based on grace. And, and that's been done for us. And, and he has forgiven us. And he put his spirit inside of us. Ephesians 1 and 1 John say that we have confidence before God. So, so. By initial faith in Christ, we have made the right decision before God. We are born again. Then, obviously, that's not where the whole story ends. Secondly, by continual faith in Christ, we now walk with God as our friend. And we walk with God. And, and, and people might claim that, 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 that to be right with God the Father. But if they are not walking with God as a friend, then there's a question about whether or not that they are right before God or not. And then follow me here. This is where it gets really confusing. We experience the new birth, salvation. We also experience a new life. You experience a new birth, but you should also be experiencing a what? A new life. Galatians 2 says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. So in life, I live now, and I live by what? By faith. So we are saved by faith. Then we live out our salvation by what? By faith. Saved by faith. But our whole life is lived out by faith. We walk by faith. We live by faith. And that's what's the results of this radical obedience to his word. And here's what the deal is. When you're right before God, you're walking with God as a friend. And you'll never have to fear his commands when you're right with God. That the God, the Father, you will know and you'll walk with God as a friend and you'll never have to be afraid of his commands. You are free to do whatever he says, not what you want to do, because you know he's good and he will never leave you wrong. And he's enough to save you and provide you uh, with whatever you need in your life. So the basis of salvation, Christ, means of salvation, faith. And works is the evidence of our salvation. Works is the evidence of our salvation. We need to run and, and, and from the works of salvation and, 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 and think that our works may be right before God. But that does not mean that the works are totally disconnected from God. And no, we don't 
work to be saved, but once we're saved, the work should be part of our, uh, our life. I, we should have a, a, a byproduct of works in our life that justifies that we are saved. And they're just not the basis of salvation. They are, in, they are not the means, but they are the evidence. Listen to what James says. Faith is not to have works is dead. That's what he said earlier, ain't it? Show me your faith apart from your works. And then he said, I'll show you my faith by my works. That's what Paul said. What James is saying here, there are two things that we need to be concerned about. Number one, he is saying that faith creates works. Faith creates works. He uses Abraham as an example. If we are born again, if we are saved, our faith should produce works in our life. Now you get to Genesis 22 and Abraham and the obedience of God takes his son up to that mountain to be able to sacrifice him and to put him to death. And what God provided him a way out, his faithfulness allowed God to provide him a way out. He said he put a ram in the bush instead of him sacrificing his son, but through obedience, he made the effort and Christ counted that as righteousness so that his son could be saved. So how do we supposed to think about works? Well, faith creates works, but not works fueled by the flesh. In this oftentimes, Paul talks about all works, but works that we do in order to earn our way to God. You cannot earn your way to God, so you don't want to try to do that. That leads to legalism, and you think you've done enough legalism to be able to satisfy God. That brings no glory to God. Uh, exalting man, what can that supposedly do to exalt God? So when we said faith create work. We're not talking about works that we are fueled by our flesh or life or legalism that exists. Instead, we're talking about works that are the fruits of our faith and works that are grounded in the results of our faith in God. And, and that's how James is talking about it tonight. Paul talks about some of it. He talks about a life of love. So even Paul says that faith working through love. Galatians 5 and 6, and this is the beauty of, of, of how works in, that are created by faith. Then follow this. As we trust God wholeheartedly, we abide in him, John 15. And as we trust in him, we also obey him. The fruits of trust in God is obedience to God. So let's say that again. Uh, our obey him and our fruit of our trust in God is our obedience to God. Huh? The fruit of trust is our obedience. When we started walking, I heard people say when praises go up, huh, blessings come down. That's not in the Bible. He says, if my people that are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my faith, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I'll heal the land. Obedience brings the blessings of God. That's what we have to understand. So once we trust God wholeheartedly, we abide in him, we trust God. Works creates faith, and then works complete faith. Let me say that again. Works create faith, and then also works what? Complete faith. James says at the end of James 22 and 20, Abraham's faith had made complete by what he did. Huh? So our faith is what? Completed in our works. It comes to full fruition in our works. You can say you have faith, but what James said, faith without works is dead. If you tell me you have faith and have no works, something is wrong in your life. It's based on them. It's based on works. John 3 says, whatever. Whatever does 
is true comes from the light so that it may be clearly seen by the works that have been carried out in God. See, God glorifies himself in salvation and God glorifies himself in the lives of, of, of people that are full and salvation is free, but our lives should be full in Christ and we've got to fight uh, this idea that, that, that we can be saved or born again and your life can look exactly opposite. Huh? You can't do that. That's not the point. It blasphemes God. It radically changes our lives. Faith in him produces the fruits of our lives. And, and that's why Jesus is saying that, that you will see deeds in my people and their deeds will glorify my father that is in heaven. So two primary statements that, that I want to be able to make that, 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 that make sure that we're on the same page. Number one, the basis and means and the evidence of our salvation are only possible by the grace of God. It's all by his grace. It's not by anything that we do. Augustine said that God gives us what he demands so that he likes uh, with our, it's like with our sons or on a birthday that, that you would give them what they need, that you should have grace enough to be able to give them what they need. So this is not uh, the best type of, of, of illustration that we can have. But the thing about it is the reality of everything that we give to God is what he has already given unto us. God never asks us for anything that he did not provide for us. He, 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 he wants us to be saved. He provides us with a savior. He wants us to grow. He provides us with the Holy Spirit to instruct us. So God provides and gives to us. So he never expects anything out of us that he did not already provide with us. So any works that's, that, 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 that we have in our lives, it's because of what God had done already. He had already given to us. So the picture that Paul, is, that, that he's going up, that I need grace today. So all day long he works, he works hard and he gets to the end of the day and he said, I will, I, it was all grace and by grace that I got up this morning, that I accomplished what I did. Everything I did was God's grace. God got me up. God got me to the job. God got me on my way. God accomplished what I accomplished on the job. God got me back from the job, got me back home. It was God's grace that did all of that. Paul tells the picture of grace, and he says that I need grace today. Every day of my life, I need God's grace because without his grace, I will not be able to make it. Grace, so what works are good, but we need grace to be able to help us through the difficulties of life. I, I love this quote from Ian Thomas. He said, be well, lest even as a Christian you fall in Satan's trap. You may have found uh, and come to know that God in the Lord Jesus Christ receiving him sincerely as your redeemer. Yet, if you do not enter into the mystery of godliness and allow God to be in you, the origin of his image, you will seek, listen to this, to be godly by substituting yourself eternal rules and regulations by confounding or conforming to some behavior pattern uh, to impress or imposed on by some religious organization and you have chosen to try to please them rather than trying to have the pursuit of happiness in your life by being obedient to God. See, see that's really good, ain't do, do you really see this? Why is this so important? Because when we talk tonight, we need to do what 
with our possessions, we need to realize it's only by God's grace that we have what we have. You're so caught up in possessions not realize God is the author and finisher of everything that we have. So secondly, the basis means that the evidence of our salvation is ultimately involved in judgment before God. See, judgment before God. Stay in, stay, to stand before God in heaven and to use the old question, why should I be allowed in heaven? Your answer is here because Christ paid the price and died on the cross for me and I trust in him. I cling to him. Now, nothing in my life is him that I believe in. Simply to the cross I cling. Everything that I own is Christ Jesus. Paul said, Christ Jesus, him and crucified. He's done it all. That's Christ. It is not why I did this or why I did that. It's not, uh, no, it's my faith in Christ that does everything. And there's a fruit of my faith, like James talks about, that shows that, 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 that there was not some dead faith, but it was real faith that helped me get along the way. Now, these words that you see in Scripture in Matthew 24, he said, one who endures until the end. And does that mean that, that I have to work for my salvation? No, it means that faith endures. Uh, judgment according to our works, Romans 2 and 1 Timothy 4, keep a close watch on yourself in teaching, persist in this, for doing so you will save yourself and others. The passage you know, is appropriate in what is talking about Matthew 25 when Jesus, uh, uh, because you did this, you fed the hungry and you did the sick and you were thrown in eternal punishment. That's not saying that because you did something that was wrong, but because that you did not trust Christ. You thought in your own efforts that you was pleasing God rather than Christ. The basis of your salvation is your faith in Christ, not the works that you do. So we got to trust God in that. Then we talk about the urgency of eternity. We're getting that to the last part of our study. That leads to the final tread. Those five treads that we studied uh, is looking at is the, 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 the uh, uh, character of God, the sufficiency of Christ, the necessity of faith. And now we're looking at the urgency of eternity. This urgency of eternity. Heaven is a glorious reality for those who trust in Christ. Whoever believes that in him will never perish but have eternal life. That's John 3, 16, ain't it? Huh? Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3, 20 and 21. On the other hand, hell is a dreadful place. It's a reality that those who die will, without Christ will have to spend eternity there in that place. I want to pause for a second because... Uh, before we go on, the, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask those that are out in the audience. I wish you could ask one one on one, everybody that you meet, uh, to ask them the question, have you, uh, has God given you a new heart? Huh? Has he renewed you and has you born again? Have you looked at Christ and, and Christ alone as the basis of your salvation? Huh? Uh, have you looked at Christ as the basis of salvation? Have you thrown aside all of the religious attempts to earn your favor to God? And have you trusted in him alone? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. If you have not done that, I urge you tonight. Christ is good for you. He paid the price for you. And now you're free to be able to try to, not to earn your way to God of the universe, 
but to receive it freely from God. The God of the universe has made his way available to you through Christ Jesus. And over the last few moments, hopefully we've been able to help us to open our eyes and, and maybe in the moment he's beginning to change our heart and, and, and maybe he's allowing us to be born again to bring us into proper relationship with him. But the gospel demands us to make a decision. It demands us a decision on every single life that is in the audience today. Will you turn to Jesus, choose to live without Christ now? If you do that, you're going to die without Christ. And when you die without Christ, you will have no place in eternity. So the question is, will you turn from Christ? Will you turn from Jesus? Will you choose a life without him? Will you die without Christ in your life? Or will you turn to him and to give him everything due? Did, did he die for you? He died for me. He died for you to be able to have eternal life. So the only thing you have to do is to believe in your heart, then confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Bible tells me thou shalt be saved. So we need to understand that's the most important question that we need to ask. Have we been born again? Have we accepted Jesus Christ, the free gift of salvation from him that he offered to each one of us? That's the Gospels is about bringing people to repentance. Look at Matthew. Go into the Great Commission. He says they're going to all of their baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you always, even until the end of the earth. He said, all power is given unto me. All power. God has all the power to be able to bring us in the right fellowship with him if we would use the way that he made available through us, who? Through Jesus Christ. That's the way that we have that's what we should talk about, the gospel, the power that has been given to us through God to redeem, to change, and to affect people's lives. Introduce them to Christ. Give them a way to be able to turn their lives around and to give them a new hope and a new determination. We thank God for you joining us on this Friday evening. Hopefully, as we got through this second session of our lesson, we're talking about the gospel, possessions, and uh, prosperity. God has so much for us to do. Let's not get caught up into thinking that, that all of these financial blessings are, are more important than reaching the lost souls in the world. We need to reach the lost in this world to make an impact upon people's lives. God bless you. May heaven ever smile upon you and let us bow. Father God, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come. And, and as we depart, Lord, we ask that your presence and your spirit will be available with us. Bless the students that were listening tonight. Bless the teacher. Give me the boldness and the courage to hold on. Give me the um, fortitude to just hold out. Lord, we thank you for so much. We thank you for all that you have done in our ministry here, our, 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 our business and everything that we do. We do it to glorify your name. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. May heaven have a smile upon you.